0: If you're able, will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Reading from Acts chapter 20. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: This is a unique and special passage in the book of Acts. In fact, it's the one place in the entire book of Acts in which Luke has set aside a time and a place to record Paul's interaction with Christian believers. The rest of the book of Acts, what you get is Paul interacting chiefly with unbelievers. Now, granted, in Paul's letters to the churches, we have lots of his interaction or his intentions with Christian communities. But in the book of Acts, Luke could have recorded all kinds of things. Remember, Just in Ephesus, Paul has been there almost three years. So think about all the teaching and all the instruction that has occurred. But when Luke, prompted by the Spirit, sits down to to give a a historical account, this is the one interaction he wants to record. And for that reason alone, I think it should pique all of our interest, right? There must be a a particular significance to this for Luke and for the church in terms of its health. Now, to give you your compass bearing, so to speak, for the passage, we've skipped a couple of small travel narratives to arrive at this portion of chapter 20. What's going on is Paul has been around the Mediterranean world collecting, uh, uh, giving, collecting uh, support for the poor who are suffering from a famine in Jerusalem, and he's headed to Jerusalem. He's going to pass somewhat by Ephesus, and he believes that this is the last time he's ever going to see the elders in Ephesus. That may or may not be true. Many believe that Paul ends up being imprisoned in Ephesus on his way uh, to Rome. But from Paul's perspective, this is his last opportunity. And so he summons the elders to Miletus, and it's about a day's journey. And there he meets them. And this, from Paul's perspective, is his last charge. Imagine, Paul's like a parent to this church that he's invested deeply in. He has this last window to impart something to them. What do you say? Whatever you say, you can bet it's going to be significant because it is those last words that you get to set someone on a certain path and in a certain direction before you see them again. And what Paul's going to do in our passage is first, he'll use his own faithfulness as an example for the church. And then he's going to make sure that they understand that there'll be a transition of leadership. He's leaving, and it's time for the elders in Ephesus to take ownership. And then he will exhort them specifically, challenge them specifically in ways to be faithful over the flock. Right, so we've got Paul's example of faithfulness, the transition of leadership, and then what it looks like for the Ephesian elders to be faithful. Now some of you are already grinning and putting your feet up and looking for your coffee because you're thinking, I'm not an elder. I don't have to worry about what this passage says. But of course that would be foolish, right? Right? These are, would be requirements and are more poignant for our elders. Our elders here this morning need to take uh, better notes than everyone else this morning as Paul is speaking to elders. But what's good for the leadership of the church is good for the church at large. Right? We all aspire to become more like Christ. And here Paul is actually taking up the very question that we've been asking all along in the book of Acts. Right? Each week we've been taking up the question, what does it mean to be the faithful people of God? What does that look like? Well, thank you, Paul. Right now, he's gonna sit down with the Ephesian elders and say, this is what it looks like to be the faithful people of God. And so, Paul takes up our very question for us this morning. So what do we have to learn from his example? Paul's not shy about using his own life. He lives it with such integrity uh, that he can say, if you want to live faithfully before God and honor Christ, your life can look like mine, because my life looks like Christ's. That's a pretty profound thing to be able to say. And Paul makes clear that for his faithfulness, he has suffered. His road has not been an easy one. If you look at verse 19, it says that he has served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, those who opposed the message that Jesus was Messiah. And in verse 23, as Paul says, I'm not sure exactly what lies before me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. That's no small degree of suffering. Tears, Jews being opposed to him, afflictions, imprisonment. You know, I'm not going to belabor this point. We've dealt with it in time past, but please be reminded, where in the, how in the world do we get to the place of saying, you know, things like hashtag blessed and hashtag God things? Here's the most significant of all apostles, right? Radical in his faithfulness and obedience, willing to suffer beyond most that we know of, right, for the sake of the gospel. And do we see him enjoying this this amazing material prosperity as a result of his faithfulness? No, we see that in every city, the Spirit promises him afflictions and imprisonment. So should be careful that uh, suffering is not necessarily... Uh, some punishment by God for what we have done wrong but may indeed be the very grace that he extends to us to be made new and for the church to, to move forward. And Paul says even, I've su- even though I've suffered all this I have not shrunk back from my duty. Look at verse 20. I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has endured what he is calling the Ephesian elders to endure. He is saying, I have suffered, but I've remained faithful. I've not shrunk back from my calling. And he's about to say to the elders, you're going to suffer. Problems and challenges are going to come upon you. And you must be faithful as well. This is his charge. And he can say this with integrity. Of course, his life is an example. But even as I've, I've hinted at before, it's so much more than that in the sense that Paul, Paul's life tells the story of the life of Jesus, right? For all his obedience, for all his righteousness, Paul might claim certain things, a certain prerogative or rights or privileges, but instead you look at him and you see the face of Jesus in the sense that, I, that he says, I lay all of this down. I do not claim my rights or my privileges, but instead I surrender myself to be a tool for extending this gospel message in uh in the church in Ephesus and in the churches in the Mediterranean world. Sometimes I wonder, how hard was it for Paul? Right? I mean, if you, really, if you really think about Paul's life and the degree of suffering that he engaged in, would you keep worshiping this God or following this Messiah? If every city you went to, you got the snot beat out of you, and yet you said, I love this Jesus, I follow him, At some point, that had to get really old. And yet, over and over again, we see Paul's willingness to follow in faithfulness. Not a very ordinary story. Most of the stories of the history of the world, in terms of people who followed some God or showed some allegiance, right, reap these enormous benefits in this time and in this place. And that's not true for Paul. He has utter confidence that God will be faithful but the benefits that he's reaping are not material in this time and in this place. And still he remains faithful. How does he do it? How does he walk so steadfastly in the midst of such frustration and seemingly in the midst of God seeming to be very willing to allow him to suffer to a great extent? I think a big part of the key is verse 24. Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. I do not account my life of any value. I don't think Paul is saying that his life has no value, Period. That would be an odd thing for Paul to say, given that at other places he says his life has enormous value because of the value that God has placed on it by sacrificing his son to redeem it from sin and death. So, for example, in Romans 8, Paul writes, "...for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord." Well, certainly that communicates that his life is of great value. The lives of those who are redeemed are of great value. So what does Paul mean when he says that I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself? Well, just that, I think. That if we're talking about the values we would place on our own lives or the means by which we would establish whether or not our life is valuable, Paul says, I don't play by those games or those rules anymore. I don't need to measure or compare myself. I don't need to fulfill my own hopes and dreams to decide that my life has value. It's not value or precious to myself. It's valuable only as it fulfills the calling that God has placed upon it. Now, this is not something that flies very far in our culture today. If we looked left or if we looked right, we would hear the same thing, which is, you have to figure out who you are and a psychologist put it you have to become self-actualized which means as all of us wrestle with how do I justify my own existence we begin to answer that question in and of ourselves typically by measuring ourselves well I'm I'm smarter or faster or better or holier than these people around me and as a result of those measurements I decide oh my life is significant and has value and has meaning I think sometimes as you get older, this becomes less attractive because you recognize it. You've tried it for so many years, you realize it's just kind of a dead end. But I've noticed, young people, that a lot of you engage in this, and perhaps it's just part of growing up. But I really have a heart for you as I, as I listen to some of your conversations. Right? I'm talking to those of you, fourth, fifth, sixth, all the way up through 12th grade and into college. you constantly comparing. This person has this. I don't have this. This person has um, these qualities in their physical appearance. I wish I had those qualities. This person's faster or stronger or smarter. And over and over again, it's it's exhausting, because you're constantly trying to establish why you are significant or important. You're trying to grant your own life value and decide why it's precious. But again, it's very difficult. It's really beyond you to actually establish that value upon yourself. Now, part of this, I think, is just human, and I don't know that we get beyond it in, in total. But, but I think it's an interesting question to ask. To ask this of Paul, Paul, how would you, how would you measure yourself against your peers? Your speaking ability. Uh, are you smarter than Peter? Uh, were you the most important apostle? Uh, do you take pride in writing more books than anyone in the New Testament? Do you think you have value and your life is precious? And I think Paul would say simply, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking it within the wrong system. Yes, my life is precious and my life is valuable, but not because I am beating everyone around me at various aspects of life and therefore determining my meaning. My life is valuable and precious because the God who created this world has not spared his own son to redeem me. And so now I don't have to play by these games. I'm actually loved and made complete and whole and secure in that love. And now I don't have to establish my identity because I've beaten someone. Or I've been more successful than someone. Or I've made sure that I have more than someone else. And in that, realize there's a radical freedom to simply wake up and roll out of bed and say, I don't have to play by these rules. I don't have to assign myself significance based on these structures that are part of the powers and the principalities of the air. Instead, I know that I am deeply loved. And yes, now I have skills and talents and I I seek to use them for the glory of God, but it is to fulfill my calling, not to establish my identity apart from the God who loves me. And so in this way, Paul demonstrates dramatic freedom and he encourages the uh, Ephesian elders, even in this this way that he's speaking, right, this way of being, he's saying, uh, "I am both freed in Christ, and I have also demonstrated this among you by the way that I have lived. Right? Despite my suffering, I have proven faithful. I have taught you that which is profitable and necessary." And then the transition in leadership comes in verses twenty-five and twenty-seven now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify you to, to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul says, I've been faithful, and now I'm departing. You will have to take ownership, but notice he also says, I am innocent of the blood of all. In other words, Paul's been faithful in what he's called to do, but... If people choose disobedience over faithfulness, what's going to happen? Blood will be shed. Not, not literally uh, necessarily, right? But what Paul is saying is, if you choose disobedience, then the community will pull apart and you will devour one another and people will be hurt. And if that happens, it's not on me. It's because you've walked down a different road than the one that I have taught you. And so... Paul now turns, making clear this transition of leadership, and says, this is what it means, Ephesian elders, for you to be faithful. I'm going to exhort you in four basic ways. Number one, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Well, if we're serious about being the faithful people of God... And if Paul is here exhorting the elders to be the faithful shepherds of the people of God, what's good for the shepherds is also good for the flock. And how does real faithfulness begin? What's Paul's first exhortation? Pay careful attention to what? To the sin of your neighbor? To the obnoxiousness of those around you? To all the things that you can correct in your righteousness? No. Pay careful attention to yourselves. To practice faithfulness begins with an attention to personal holiness. If you're not praying, you can't exhort someone to prayer. If you're not spending time in the Word, you can't tell someone to spend time in the Word. If you're not loving your enemies, then you cannot challenge someone to be forgiving toward their enemies. There has to be an integrity. If you aren't practicing these things, but challenging others, you have to be mindful of yourself before you can be mindful of others. Or as Jesus would put it, You must take stock of the log that is in your eye before you attend to the splinter that is in your brother's eye. Number two, verse 31, be alert. Well, why is Paul saying be alert? For the reason, you have to back up to verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul says, listen, after I leave, I know two things are going to happen. Number one, fierce wolves are coming in from the outside. People are going to attack the church, and from inside, people are going to start to teach wrong things. Theology is going to be twisted, and as a result of that, some people are going to walk away. In other words, there will be threats from the outside, there will be threats from the inside, and some will be devoured as a result. And so, he says, be alert. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that the church is not a threatened community. So I said earlier, we were in uh, Florida this week, and we had a couple of stormy days. And stormy days, of course, are disappointing because the rain and the lightning sometimes makes you stay inside, but it can also be a lot of fun because it kicks up the waves. And so the first day, it was a double red flag, and unfortunately, you're not allowed to be in the water at all on a double red flag. But the next day, it was a single red flag. And so, uh, with caution, you can go into the water, but there was also a high riptide warning. A riptide is when the currents of the ocean work together, they essentially form a river in the ocean of current that will carry you out to sea. A couple years ago, uh, somebody got caught in a particularly strong riptide, and they found him alive the next day, nine miles out to sea. That's how strong the current had been. So... You can imagine that I uh, sat on the beach and took a nap while my kids played in the water. (laughs) Of course not, right? I think the threat is very real. So my kids can't be in the water on a single red flag day unless I'm in the water. And they can't be out of a certain distance from me. And if I feel the currents change, we're either moving or we're getting out. And we all have every time, right, they have memorized the riptide talk to get out of a riptide, you swim parallel to the beach rather than trying to fight the current back into the beach. Right? They can rehearse that to you because they hear it every time there's any, any warning of a riptide. Right? So all this is going on. But I, I believe that the threat is real and so I'm vigilant as a result of believing that threat is real. But you look up and down the beach and lots of people think there's no threat. There are lots of people in the water. I don't have to be careful. Right? And somebody drowned that day. Because they were carried out and caught in the surf and pulled back in, but they never were revived. Right? They didn't believe that there was a real threat and they weren't being careful. If we come to the place in the church and our complacency because we don't say, oh, threats, goodness me, and we stop being on the alert, right? that's how you drown. We're called to be on the alert, both from threats on the outside and threats on the inside that we would protect one another, and particularly the elders would protect the flock. All right, those are two, that's two exhortations. We're on number three, verse thirty-two. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Notice that Paul isn't saying simply, "Listen, I'm leaving, but you're going to be okay if you rely upon my teaching," or "I'm leaving, and you'll be fine." Right? As long as you do X, Y, and Z. Paul says what you must do is to rely upon something that you can't do, something that comes from outside of yourself. All of this hinges upon you being a recipient and participant in the grace of God. To understand that He has bought you with a price and to rely upon His power and the Spirit to equip the church, right? Which, as Paul says, has been bought Uh to equip the church to be faithful. The temptation is always us for us to move in a direction where we might rely upon things other, like our own resources or our own intelligence or our own strength or skills. But Paul says, no, you must rely upon the grace of God and remember his kindness to you in the midst of your journey. And number four, verse 35, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's fourth exhortation, of all the things he could have said, he wants to make sure that the church takes seriously caring for the weak, or and the word here uh, connotates the poor. And he wants the elders to be working, um, The notion here probably is that the church is growing and there are enough resources where the elders might be able to perhaps stop working or rely upon the giving of the church. And Paul says, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to keep working very hard so that you have resources to share with those who are in need. So the needs of the church might be bound up by the generosity and the resources of the church at large. And this is, of course, true of the local body as we engage things like the Benevolence Fund. It's true of our expectations of elders. But we also have to think of it in terms of the global body. Because if we ask globally what part of the church is weak, what part of the church is poor, it's not the part that we live in. We're part of the very, very, very rich church. Right? And therefore, it is incumbent upon us right, to share with the needs of the church globally. Globally. Which is, of course, why we participate with these ventures in India and try to support the church and the ministers who work in uh, in those areas. All right. So Paul has given four charges. Should we ask the elders who are here if they got all four? I heard a yes. No, we won't do that. Did you get all four? Number one was to mind yourself before you mind others. Number two, to be alert. There are threats from the outside and the inside. Number three is to rely on God's grace. And number four is to work to give. These four exhortations, though, of course, how in the world would we be faithful in all of them? How can we expect our leadership to be faithful and elders who shepherd the flock? How can we, be fa- how can we expect ourselves to grow in these where we would be so mindful of others, Right? Why are we minding ourselves so that we don't get in the way of the health of the community? We're we're alert for threats that come against the community. Of course, we're relying on God's grace. And then why do we work? We work to support those in need in the community. And all of this is something that we can only engage if we truly start to understand Paul's statement in verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Do you believe that you have received something that you do not deserve and that as a result of receiving it, you are no longer your own? Now that's terribly threatening because essentially what you're saying is, oh, you're talking about being a servant, being owned in a certain capacity. Yes, I am. But do you realize how radically freeing that is? Because if you don't sign up for Jesus as your master, as he calls you, then you're going to have to sign up for another master. And that master will demand that you justify your existence by your comparisons and your measurements and achieving various things. And that master will ultimately devour you. Because apart from Jesus, all other masters are monsters consider your life and as a result of the price that has been paid for it would you dare to consider that your life in and of your own terms has no value and is not precious but according to the blood of Jesus is more precious than anything that exists on earth. Let's pray. Father we praise you this morning and thank you for the grace that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for Your kindness to us, we thank you for raising up Paul and his willingness to suffer, to be faithful to his call. We thank you for the elders in Ephesus who were willing to engage uh, the threats that came against the church there and to provide for the flock. We thank you for the elders of Rockwall Press who labor faithfully to protect the flock. And we pray that you would particularly encourage them in their faithfulness, that you would help them to to mind their own holiness to be alert uh, to rely upon your grace and to work in such a way that they uh, that we all might be generous towards those who are in need and for this we pray that you would remind us as we come to the table this morning that we are not our own and that all of our biggest questions of meaning and purpose and significance all of them will be answered best when we find ourselves telling the story of Jesus, the story of our redemption. So would you equip us in it as we come to your table this morning? We ask in Christ's name, amen.